Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, the disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was sleeping. And they came to him and got him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you so cowardly, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Are we, are we standing? Are we sitting? We don't know. You just always have to be ready either way, don't you? Good morning, church. I'm so glad to be back with you. I'm back from a vacation, which um, included, among other things, a trip to Glacier National Park. Um, have you been to Glacier? It's worth, it's worth doing. And, um, you know, I, I've been thinking about an experience um, I had at Glacier that I, I, I think relates to where we're going in Scripture today, believe it or not. Um, like a lot of our national parks... Um, Glacier um, is big, but it's, it's not the kind of big where it's not also really crowded. In fact, there are more people who want to see the wonders of Glacier National Park uh, than sometimes fit. Um, and and the, the, the roads that wind through the park are really narrow, and, and the campgrounds and the cabins are, are a little, um, um, have limited space. And, and so there is this... Um, well-enforced permitting system uh, that you have to pay pretty close attention to if you want to get into the park. Um, You need a national park pass. That's the easy part. You can just buy that at the gate when you show up. Um, But you also have to have a permit for a specific area of the park on the day that you want to be at that specific area. And the thing of it is, is if you don't get the permit, um, you can't get into the park. And uh, it's crowd control, right? And some people miss that second part. They, they, they show up uh, with their park pass, and, and they're so excited and so enthused, and they just can't re- wait, uh, but, but they get turned away at the main entrance because they didn't get the one-day permit. They, they, they weren't prepared. And, and so one of the first scenes we saw wasn't some majestic, you know, mountain, but it, but it was um, a long line of cars, uh, people waiting to get in the park, and eventually this long line turns into four entrance lanes, um, but there's a fifth lane for those who are unprepared, and, and sadly, they're, they're kind of directed to the, you know, this lane of shame <laughs> where they, you know, they, have, they have to turn around, and they don't get in. And, it, you know, it's one thing to drive over there from Idaho. That's no big deal. But, but, but in the turnaround lane, there are, there are cars with plates from New York, Maine. What a disappointment to get to the gate and be filled with enthusiasm only to find that you're unprepared. And you wonder, well, what in the world does that have to do with Matthew 8? Um, Matthew shows us, in those verses we just heard read to us, a, a sad picture of those who seem to be enthused to follow Jesus. But, but their good intentions are spoiled when they find they are unprepared, that they have not counted the cost of following Jesus. And it's only those who count the cost and truly follow Jesus It's only those who experience the sufficiency of his unrivaled power 
the sufficiency of his unfathomable care for his people. This is all to do with whether or not you're in the boat with Jesus. And Matthew presents to us a scene in which Jesus has been ministering in Galilee of northern Israel. And uh, he, he's been in the uh, sort of backwater towns, if you will, of the nation Israel, uh, far away from the Jewish religious center, the, the, uh, the hubbub of Jerusalem and its temple. And, and you know, 80% of the life of Jesus given to us in the Gospels takes place in Galilee. How interesting. We'll come back to that. It's in Galilee of the Gentiles that we find the Mount of Beatitudes, where Jesus preached his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, It's in Galilee of the Gentiles where we find Capernaum. And and Capernaum, you may recall from a few weeks ago, was was a home base of sorts for Jesus and his disciples as he ministered in Galilee. And boy, did he minister, healing the sick, casting out demons, And so larger and larger crowds begin to follow this Jesus. And it's because of the press of a large crowd at the home of Peter's mother-in-law that Jesus tells his disciples, hey, it's time to cross over from Capernaum to the other side of the sea. So this whole episode, if you will, here in Matthew 8, Uh, is to do with a picture of discipleship. Discipleship is described for us in terms of its cost. Are you prepared to get into the boat with Jesus and actually follow him? Or are you among those excited about the idea of it all? And you're hanging out with the Jesus people. And yet unprepared. You you haven't really counted the cost. And secondly, discipleship, as the storm shows us, is is tested, isn't it? Weak faith is strengthened as you're in the boat with Jesus in the storms of life that most certainly come as a Christian, as, as a true follower of Jesus. Do you see through eyes of faith that the best place for you to be in the midst of whatever storm there is, is simply in the boat with Jesus, intimately attached to his agenda for your life. Well, I mean, if, if you're pressed for time, that's the whole message. Um, but, but, but notice that um, I'm trusting that you're not. So look in verse 18 with me at, at the, this need to count the cost. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Jesus, the king, Yahweh's anointed king, the king of kings, gives orders. Did you know that? If you were to follow Jesus, you must know that he gives orders. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, says the king. We've seen this already in Matthew's gospel. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. Sinner, have you obeyed this command? Repent and be baptized. Draw your line in the sand publicly. Let me ask you something. Have you gone public with your allegiance to Jesus Christ? That's what baptism is. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's not graduate-level Christianity. It's a command. Let me ask you something. How do you feel about being ordered? Because your king gives orders. Are you okay with that? Pam and I were at Winco the other day, and it's amazing how quickly one loses the, the rest from a vacation. Um, if, you, if you want to do it really quick, go to Winco on a busy day. And we're at Winco and doing what, you know, just doing what you do at Winco. And, and um, we're in one of these lines that is so long, it, there has to be a gap in it so people can get through with their shopping carts. Yeah, you, you've been there. And, um, and, and there's this lady in front of us with her cart, and, and, and she just wouldn't move it forward. 
And it, and it was driving me nuts. And, and I, 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 you know, you get that kind of nervous twitch and you're <laughs> trying to be pleasant. And um, so what, what is her problem? And, 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 finally, and finally, Pam says uh, to her very politely, um, you know, we, we could probably just kind of move forward now because there, there's room for our carts. And, and she looks at us and she says, you know, I, I could, but I'm not going to now that you told me to. <laughs> Whoa! This is Winco, <laughs> Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, right? And, and, I, and I was not thinking um, pastoral thoughts. Um, I, I, I was, uh, but, but fortunately, I kept my thoughts to myself, but there was another lady next to us, and she, she said, well, some people just shouldn't be out in public. And I, and I thought, you know... I thought that too. <laughs> I just didn't say it. Why do we laugh at that? Why do we laugh at that? Other than it's just a dumb story. Listen, you don't want to be ordered around by nature. Do you realize your king gives orders? Do you realize, church, the Christian life is not a self-directed life? It's a life directed by King Jesus. If you are not the subordinate one in the relationship with Jesus, you are not in the boat with Jesus. Are you hearing this? And you will miss the wonder and majesty and joy and the purposefulness that comes from following Jesus closely and truly. And so you might just ask yourself, am I willing to be led by another? Am I willing to order my life by the word of Christ? Not by that way that seems right to me, but the end thereof is, oh, you read that. Listen, some of you may even now be missing Christ's rescue from that great storm of God's wrath for your sin. Hell is on your horizon. This life is as close to heaven as you're going to get because Christ's rescue can only be grasped through allegiance to Him. Simply naming Jesus and applauding him from the shore and then going your own way in life, that, that won't do. At some point, you've got to get off the shore and into the boat. Follow me, says Jesus. Obey me. Live by my agenda. I'll take you all the way to the kingdom in its fullness. Are you in the boat with Jesus in that sense? Now we should probably actually start looking at the passage, don't you think? Notice with me that there are some things that keep the, the, the merely excited, the merely enthused from truly surrendering to Christ. Look at verses 19 and 20. Then a scribe came. Remember the scribes, those are the professional religious guys. A scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What an admirable desire this man has. Teacher, I'll follow you anywhere. Remember the context of this passage. It's been a, a very exciting day and now evening in, in Galilee. Hour after hour after hour, Jesus has healed the diseased. He's, he, he's healed the despairing. He's, 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 he's liberated uh, the demon-possessed. Uh, Mark's gospel says that the, it was as if the whole city was gathering in front of the door at the home of Peter's mother-in-law who also was healed by Jesus. I mean, there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of stuff happening now. 
And perhaps it's in that excitement, you know, sort of all caught up in the moment, that this scribe expresses this perfectly admirable desire to go wherever the master goes. But, but, but what is Matthew showing us here in his gospel? A superficial excitement for Jesus is not the same thing as a considered response of faith in Jesus, right? All throughout the gospels, we see the fan club, the Jesus fan club, get smaller and smaller. So King Jesus does not respond, you know, enthusiastically in return, you know, waving the fellow onto the boat. Instead, he, he, he gives a not-so-subtle warning here. You who would follow me, count the cost. The king in his humanity has chosen a lifestyle in which personal comfort and earthly security are not guaranteed. Follow me. Follow me, he says. Following Jesus often comes at the expense of personal comfort and earthly security. So you might ask yourself, am I willing to follow Christ even though I have no guarantee of the comforts of this world? Now, if you're sitting in this room, and you are, um, we've got that settled now, we're seated. Um, you are enjoying the comforts of this world. And compared to all of the people who have ever lived in human history, you enjoy some security in this world. But how many of you know you're not promised that as a follower of Jesus? Jesus knows the heart of all would-be followers, and so he knows this guy's deal. And so he offers this warning because this is the fellow's point of no return. Comfort, security, his, his position in the community, all of that will change if he's to follow Jesus. This king is not content to rule over your leftovers. He aims to rule all of you. All of me. One commentator says, salvation is the free gift that costs you everything. John, in his gospel, puts it this way. This is John 6, 64. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. Many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. You wonder, well, what, what in the world happened? When the true cost of discipleship is put forth, uh, the crowd of would-be followers tends to thin. And it will continue to thin all throughout Matthew's gospel when Jesus alone bears the wrath of the Father for his people's sins. The crowd continues to thin here. In chapter 8, look at verse 21. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But, but Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now that's one of those passages in your Bible where you think, that's just weird. It's okay to think that because it slows you down and makes you think through well, what, what is really happening here. Jesus doesn't want people to go to their parents' funerals? What that camp? That doesn't sound right, does it? What, what's going on here? Well, remember, Jesus knows the hearts of those who say with enthusiasm, I'm all yours, right? Um, but it's helpful to know that in Jesus' day, burial uh, was not so much an event as it was a process. A funeral took place after somebody died. Um, the body was placed in, a, in, in an open tomb uh, and allowed to... Do what happens when, when bodies are placed places. And um, maybe a year would go by. And then the eldest son had the responsibility to, to gather the, the remains, the bones, uh, place them in an ossuary, a, a box, um, for um, a, a permanent resting place, okay? So it's not as weird 
if you understand you know, what might actually be going on here. Um, the text doesn't really answer all of our questions about this guy's deal, but Jesus knows his deal. And he knows that this fellow needs to know that following Christ, following the king, uh, at times um, takes priority over family expectations. That's, that's not a surprise to us, is it? Those of us who are following Jesus, you don't feel the, the tension of that in some of your families? Following Jesus at times takes precedence over even family expectations. Now let me just say this for the sake of clarity. I don't want us to misunderstand this. Following Jesus for a lot of us means giving more to our families than we've been giving them. If you want to know how you can pray for your pastor, for example, one of the ways you can pray for your pastor is to do with this very thing. I have at times spiritualized being negligent in my family relationships, negligent in my marriage. And, and, and don't look so shocked uh, because you know what that is too, right? But at other times, following Jesus means not listening to our family's expectations because they simply cannot take priority over our allegiance to the king. When they're calling us to compromise our faithfulness to the Lord, the king takes priority. Your king gives orders. And you will at times feel the weight of that in your family relationships. Are you with me? Parents, listen. When God calls one of your precious children to go and make disciples just as he does the rest of us, and, and yet he's calling them to go to a place that's nowhere near where you live, Nowhere where you hope your grandchildren will live. Can you still bless that? In that temporary sadness, can you nonetheless still agree with Jesus that his orders are supreme? That, that his commands are primary? I, I think of um, the, the Stickles and, and, the, and the Clements and and the Mechikovs and others among us who are, who are being faced with this reality even now. And you can imagine what this guy in verse 21 is thinking. What will my friends think? I mean, what, what's the community going to think? What, what does anybody think of a fellow who misses his own dad's funeral or fails to th see things through? The, the way the culture expects him to see things through. Won't there be scorn? Won't I feel shame? Yeah. And Jesus is showing us right here in, in Mark's gospel that following Jesus at times offends cultural expectations. You cannot live in this community as a follower of Jesus Christ and not run into this kind of pushback. You must consider this before you get in the boat. Following Jesus, at times, offends the expectations of the culture, the community. Jesus' own family did not understand him. Jesus' own community rejected him. In fact, his own people shamed him, persecuted him. And Jesus says to us in John 13, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. In other words, as you follow me, this will be your experience as well. When following Jesus would separate you from your family, those who are not following him, when following Jesus would bring scorn and ridicule from the community, um, from the culture, will you still get in the boat? We haven't even left the lakeshore yet. And some of you look very worried about this because you're wearing a watch and you're thinking, How, how's this all going to play out, right? Right? <coughs> 
Let me just ask you this before we move on. What's keeping some of you from getting in the boat with Jesus? I I just want to set that there for a minute. The true gospel is a call to self-denial. It's not a call to self-fulfillment. Jesus has not come to do your bidding to enable the life that you've planned to live, whether he's in it or not. The true gospel is a call to please God above all others, sometimes even family, oftentimes the community. Well, we could stop there, but I see we have more time. Let's let's get in the boat, shall we? Look at verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now, this is... We don't want to just skip this, all right? I'm not trying to be tedious, but this is actually very important. What a simple picture this is of true discipleship. Because we live in a Christianized culture that thinks there's a difference between naming Jesus and actually following Jesus. A Christian biblically, is someone who actually follows Jesus. Amen? Amen. To be a Christian is to follow Christ. Men, we were reminded of this last Friday night. How many of you guys were here last Friday night? Wasn't that a blessing? And Doug Thompson, uh, via the Word of God, challenged us, didn't we? Are you putting your feet in the footprints of Jesus, in the footsteps of Jesus, so that those who follow you, your children, your spouse, your coworkers, whatever, they're also following Christ? This is what it is to be a disciple. Are, are you living by His agenda, obeying His commands? Trusting in his all-sufficient care? Or, or, or are you leading your kids and your grandkids into a sort of Christianized life, a, a churchy life, in which personal comfort and, and family customs and, and the culture's expectations are, are still primary? As we'll see, there, there, there's, there's a big difference between those who get in the boat with Jesus and those who stay on the shore. And this life spent following Jesus, get this, is the best life that you can have on planet Earth. God is not a killjoy. He loves you. And in Christ, He gives the best life you can possibly have in a fallen world such as ours. But it is not always an easy, comfortable life. And and the disciples are about to learn this, aren't they? They thought they were in for a routine cruise across um, the Sea of Galilee. And these guys are familiar with this lake. They they know it uh, like the back of their hand. And and they they might have even been thinking, well, man, given how busy it's been, just the the press of people and the uh, even... Wonderful, exciting things can at the same time be exhausting things, don't you think? Yeah. And so they're thinking, well, how refreshing it will be to get away from the press of all of that, and we're just going to take this evening cruise across the Sea of Galilee. How cool is that, right? Um, When Pam and I were in Israel a few years ago, um, I think one of the most pleasant experiences we had um, was taking a boat across the Sea of Galilee, after we were exploring the area around Capernaum, uh, when the sea is calm, Galilee is absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's just spectacular. That is actually a picture from our hotel room. I'm I'm almost embarrassed to say this. So as Pam and I are suffering for Jesus in Israel, (laughs) that's what we're looking at, looking, um, you know, across at uh, the area of Capernaum, uh, across the Sea of Galilee. but most of us are familiar enough with this passage to know that, that that's not what it looked like at all. That small sea or lake is very prone to sudden and violent storms. 
And, and so that's what happens. And behold, says verse 24, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was sleeping. <laughs> and they came to him and got him up saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. This is a great storm, says Matthew. This is a mega seismos, an earthquake at sea. These are fishermen. They know windy days. They know what it's like when the lake gets rough. This ain't like that. This is catastrophic. This is life-threatening danger. Mark's gospel says that the boat is already filling up with water, and you don't have to know a whole lot about fishing to understand that the whole point is to keep the boat in the sea and the sea out of the boat. That goal is not being accomplished right now. This is a fearful circumstance, not some minor thing. And yet the words disciple and follow keep popping up in this passage. This is about... Following Jesus, isn't it? Jesus may well lead you away from personal comfort and earthly security. He doesn't always, but he does sometimes. Jesus may well lead you away from what the culture expects from you, what what your own family figures you ought to be doing with your life. That does not mean something's gone wrong. Don't don't think that. In fact, it's Jesus, get this, it's Jesus who leads the disciples into the storm. This is providential. This is purposeful, not, not just random, right? Jesus purposefully leads his disciples into fearful, unwanted circumstances. Did you know that? Sometimes we're praying against the very things God has ordained for our lives. Because he knows we won't be made more like Christ but for going through these things. Some of you are in a storm right now. Maybe it's a storm in your relationships. Maybe it's a storm in your finances. Maybe it's a storm uh, of unmet expectations. It's It's just not going down the way you planned. Does it occur to you as you pray against these things that what may be happening is that God in his good providence is declaring this very storm necessary that you might be made more like Jesus? Jesus does this to grow their faith and to reveal to them his sufficiency. Is it scary? Yeah. Is it uncomfortable? Absolutely. Absolutely. Psalm 107 describes experiences like this. I'll read just a little bit of it. He, uh, that is Yahweh, spoke and set up a stormy wind. Notice that God is doing this. Which raised up the waves of the sea. They went up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in the calamity. They staggered and swayed like a drunken man, and all their wisdom was swallowed up. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. So that's what's happening with these disciples in the boat with Jesus. Their souls are melting because of their trouble. They're at their wit's end. All of their experience, all of their strength, uh, all of their, their accumulated wisdom about life at sea, um, none of that matters. And it's all by God's design. They must know something about their king who is sleeping in the back of the boat. And, 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 you know, you, you may be here this morning and you, you, can, you can relate a little bit to what it feels like to have your, your soul kind of melting in, in the face of some great storm in your life. You, you've feared failure before, uh, but, but the consequences have never seemed so severe as right now or so lasting as right now. Some, you, you've grieved before, perhaps, but, but never have the waves been so high 
That never has the pain been this great as in this storm. You've been afraid of the future before, some of you. Uh, but, But not like this time. Not like this time. This time, this storm has you at your wit's end. And where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Well, he's, he's, he's right in the back of the boat sleeping, isn't he? Why is Jesus in the stern, as Matthew's gospel says, sleeping on the, uh, a cushion? <laughs> is this the sleep of indifference, do you suppose? Is this, is this the, the sleep of disengagement? Maybe the sleep of detachment? Of, of course not. Of course not. Do you, do you think Jesus just kind of throws his followers into the sw- storm and, he, and he's got this sink or swim uh, you know, notion and, and you know, some cold calculus, let's, let's just see how you do? Don't think that of your king. He, he's never indifferent toward you. He, he's never disengaged from what you're afraid of. In this instance, Jesus sleeps because he is human. Don't miss that. And frankly, he's exhausted. In his humanity, Jesus knows all about what it is to be out of gas, as we say. And so far on this day that is now ending, the the three uh, synoptic gospels together tell us that Jesus has been Um, I mean, just think of what you do on a typical weekend. Um, Jesus has been accused of being an instrument of Satan by religious leaders. Um, His his own family came to to drag him back home because they thought he was nuts. Um, He's cast out demons. He's healed the sick. Jesus is very human, uh, though divine, and at present, in this instance, in Matthew's gospel, he's exhausted. And yet he's still teaching his men, isn't he? He's still strengthening the weak faith of those who will soon be apostles and in that faith strengthened, their gospel labors will actually turn the world upside down. They need this storm because they need to see and experience who this Jesus really is. And when we're exhausted physically, emotionally, Mentally, our faith tends to ebb and flow a bit, doesn't it? We, we know what it is to experience weak faith. We don't have to pretend otherwise. Wouldn't it be nice if there were less fake in it among God's people? And yet we even sing about it. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. Well, that's really about you guys, though, not me. This is the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus is God, become human, very much like us, yet at the same time, not at all like us. How can you possibly fathom a faith that is this strong? Jesus is perfect in his humanity. And in his perfect humanity, uh, he is exhibiting the kind of faith that he intends to build in his people. Are you hearing this? Jesus rests in the storm because he lives completely in the will of the Father. Jesus rests in the storm because he trusts fully in the word of the Father. Jesus knows that he is living toward a cross outside of Jerusalem and a tomb, and then a glorious resurrection, not the bottom of a lake in Galilee. And so this storm is not going to steal away his peace. He's trusting in the word of the Father. And in doing so, he's showing his disciples what it looks like to trust in the word of the Father. When it's contrary to feeling, when, when, when circumstances suggest otherwise... I wonder, do you see in this narrative the sufficiency of your king? Do do you see in this 
gospel cause to stop asking in life storms, you know, why is this happening to me? You know, where is God in this? Um, Can we not say, at least in our hearts, this is the will of the Lord. I, I am in his hands. And he is for me, not against me. So let him do as he wills. Here's the thing. When fear is big, when when faith is small, Jesus is still eager to turn his face toward his needy people. Did you know this? And he responds in power. And he responds in favor. Don't buy the lie that in moments of weak faith, um, you, you somehow are a failure. That, that, you, that you somehow you know, can't turn to God because you shouldn't be experiencing that right now anyway. You call yourself a Christian. Well, the enemy takes that stick to God's people all the time. What, what does the gospel of, of Isaiah say? A crushed reed, he will not break. A faintly burning wick, he will not extinguish. You who are weak in faith... Will you not yet cry out to Christ? He he wants you to do so. He invites you to do so. He's attentive as you do so. And Matthew does note, doesn't he, that Jesus rebuked the disciples before he rebuked the sea and the wind. Verse 26, and he said to them, why are you so cowardly, you men of little faith? Now, to think about that question for a moment. Why are you so cowardly? (laughs) Those of us here today who who, who live, um, some of God's people have a tendency to even live based on fear. It's fear-based living. Fearful of, you know, what what if America crumbles? (laughs) What what if social security fails? What what if I get cancer and I, I can't, what if I can't get rid of the cancer I have now? Jesus is not saying that it makes no sense to be afraid. He's saying, Do you not see me in the boat here with you? Do you realize whose you are? Do do you not realize the one who has authority over the very things you fear and is benevolent toward you, not indifferent? But, but, But these guys need to learn this. They need to learn that to follow Jesus is to live by practical trust in the king, as opposed to what? As opposed to feelings. As opposed to just reading their circumstances like tea leaves. Charles Spurgeon, you still listening? Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, the greatest evil to be dreaded is that of doubting your Lord. He who is, by the grace of God, enabled to master his own soul need not doubt that he shall also be master of everything that opposes him. Spurgeon is simply saying that that it takes a work of grace, grace that God is eager to pour out to get our eyes off the storm and to get our eyes onto the one who reigns over the storm and, and is with you and is with you in favor we, we, we just sang that, didn't we? Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness, you see? There's light for a look at the Savior. And when you turn your eyes upon Jesus, is, is it not so? Has, has not your experience proven this out? The things of this world do grow strangely dim, do they not? In the light of his glory and grace? Do they? You don't believe this, do you? No no one's experienced this. Of course we have. Of course we have. 
William Hendrickson, in, in his commentary on Matthew, puts it this way. He says, Jesus addresses them as men who were not sufficiently taking to heart the comfort they should have derived from the presence, promises, power, and love of their master. So, so that they've got to be trained away from that. And, and so do you. So, so do I. As we follow Christ, look at verse 26. Then Jesus got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. <laughs> the, the, sea didn't, the wind didn't die down, it just stopped. The waves didn't kind of gradually diminish, they just stopped. Who controls the wind and the sea but God? This Jesus, this king who says, follow me, is God. And one day, the scripture says, all things will be placed under the experienced rule of Christ. And Matthew is giving us a glimpse of what that is going to look like. The kingdom in its fullness. There's not going to be lepers. There's not going to be demon possession. There's not even going to be fevers. And there won't even be storms that seek to destroy God's people. Creation itself is to be restored, says Roman 8. It will only benefit God's image bearers. You know, um, quick story, and then we'll wrap up. But um, while we were at Glacier, we saw um, wonderful wildlife like chipmunks, and squirrels, and um, I mean, we didn't see any of the big stuff. And um, it, was, it was kind of a jip in a way. But, but the thing of it is, is one, one day my son was fly fishing, and so I, I'm with uh, his kids uh, in, the, in, a, in a creek and just playing around, um, thinking a lot about grizzly bears, I got to tell you. And um, somebody pulls up. And, 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 and walked down to, to where we and some other people were and said, hey, just so you guys know, there's a sow grizzly just upstream, and FYI, see ya. And, um, <laughs> and we, we had a couple reactions. One was, you know, we should probably go. And two, um, let's get in the car at least and see if we can find this grizzly bear, you know. <laughs> but, but, but think of it. Um, there is a day coming when you're not going to have to worry about grizzly bears. There will be complete harmony in the created order. The king's rule is being exerted over all things. Right now, what is he doing? He's exerting his rule over the hearts of his people. He's calling his people to get into the boat with him. Get off the shore. Get in the boat. And the men marveled says verse 27, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Well, Jesus has already answered that question for them, hasn't he? And I don't mean by calming the sea only. In verse 20, he identifies himself as the son of man. Did you notice that? The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus identifies himself this way. He will identify himself this way multiple times in Matthew's gospel. Turns out it's really important. Jesus is the son of man. This is an astounding self-disclosure. Who is this Jesus, they wonder? Who is this Jesus who in his humanity humbled himself and made himself of no reputation and was obedient to the Father to the point of going to that cross where he would bear the wrath of the Father for your sin. Who, who is this Jesus? This Jesus is God. He is the Son of Man. This is a, a claim of deity, not merely humanity. These Jewish men in the boat knew about this Son of Man business. Listen to... Um, I know we're, we're running out of time, but just listen, listen to Daniel 7, uh, verses 13 and 14. The, the prophecy uh, of Daniel is this. I, I kept looking in the night visions, 
And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and came near before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Really? Really? Who is this Jesus who says, follow me, get into the boat with me? He is the all-sufficient king who rules over this kingdom. And there is a day coming when there will not be visible, expressed opposition to this kingdom. Let me just say this before we close. You who have been members of churches for many, many years, but but are yet to get into the boat with Jesus. I'm not going to explain that any further. Your conscience is working now. If your life is in all honesty primarily about you, That, that's the trajectory of your life. I, 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 I would be a crummy pastor if I didn't warn you that the comfort of Matthew 8 is not yours to claim. There is a storm of judgment coming and the only place of safety is with Jesus. Staying on the shore... I got to take care of some other stuff first. I got to meet these other people's expectations first. Then I'll be with you. That's not going to cut it. Here are some men, though their faith is small, and they're going to bungle all sorts of stuff. We know that. We're going to see more of it in Matthew's gospel. But the salient point is what? They're in the boat with Jesus, and Jesus is the object of their faith. And he's training them to be stronger in that faith. Well, I'll just leave it at that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our all-sufficient king. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would work in hearts among us this day. What excuses are in this room in response to your clear command, follow me. And Lord, for those of us whose faith just feels so broken and so weak, it, it, it just, it's just a, a wick of a candle that, that's barely smoking, Lord. I, I pray that you would fan the flames of our faith in you. Jesus, that we would be a people who are more prone to look to you than to look at the, thing, at the things that trouble us in this life. Help us with this, Jesus, we pray. And we pray it for your name's sake.